Wisdom is a perfection in God and is in Him in its utmost perfection. An unwise being, God cannot be. Men may be wise in some things and not in others, but He is wise in everything. God is wisdom efficiently. He is the source and fountain of it, the God and giver of it. All that is in the angels of heaven comes from Him. And all that Adam had or any of his sons or was in Solomon, the wisest of men, or is in the politicians and philosophers of every age, and particularly the highest and best of wisdom, the fear of God and the soul of man. That is from a great Baptist theologian, John Gill, who goes on to remind us that no less than three times in Scripture is God referred to as the all-wise God. The God of all wisdom. Wisdom is more than knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are obviously intimately related, but wisdom is more along the lines of like what you do with your knowledge. Certainly you have to have one to have the other, but wisdom is knowledge applied. And we see the great wisdom of God displayed in many ways in the world and especially in Scripture. And I would submit to you, we see it in full display in our text this morning. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel chapter 16. We will read this entire chapter together. I would encourage you to follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. 
Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Well, we are about halfway through our First Samuel sermon series. I hope the first half has been enjoyable. I hope it's been edifying to you and to our church. I think the little break that we've had the last few weeks from the sermon series has been nice. But now we get back into First Samuel as we finish the second half of this book. And as I have been saying throughout the First Samuel series, that there are three pillars to this story. The story is built around three primary characters. And 1 Samuel 16 is significant because we are introduced to our final primary character. We've already met Samuel, very beginning of the book. Samuel, very important. We've already met Saul. And so much of what we've been preaching has been this storyline between Saul and Samuel and God. But today, we are introduced to young David, who becomes the central figure of this story and I would argue not just the central figure of 1 Samuel, of 2 Samuel, but one of the key central figures to all of Scripture, albeit to all of world history. There is simply, from a Christian perspective, no doubt that David is one of the most important human beings who has ever lived. And so we are finally introduced to young David, although he's still a bit of a mysterious figure in this text. We're obviously going to learn a lot more about David, but let's summarize our introduction to David. Two weeks ago, we discussed verses 1 through 5, and we saw how God had sort of given Samuel permission to engage in some kind of deception to protect himself from Saul because he has a new king to anoint, but he doesn't know who this new king is. All he knows is the tribe and the family that he's from. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem as God commands, and he goes under the guise, the Trojan horse, if you will, of a sacrifice. And then Jesse, whom the Lord said one of his sons would be the new king, brings his sons before Samuel. When Samuel first approaches the city, uh, you can tell it was this bizarre moment in the text where they were afraid of him. I don't actually know why. Um, my guess is that because Samuel, remember, was really functioning as, the, as the, the shepherd of Israel. And sometimes being a shepherd, sometimes being a leader requires rebuke. It requires hard conversations. And so perhaps Samuel had a bit of a reputation that when he showed up to a town, it was usually for a metaphorical spanking, if you will. So maybe that's what they were afraid of. Or perhaps things have just gotten so bad under Saul that, that the people are just generally pretty afraid of authority in general. So we don't really know. But for some reason, Samuel approaches Bethlehem. They're afraid. And then they're, whew, relieved. It's just a sacrifice. But we know it's not just a sacrifice. It's not just a sacrifice. Jesse and his sons are invited. And Jesse begins lining up his sons to see which one Samuel has this special 
message for. And the first one, the oldest, comes before Samuel. And Samuel is convinced, here's our guy. Right? He just, Eliab just has a kingly nature to him. He just, you just look at him and say, yeah, this guy looks like a king. Yeah, he's a king. Uh, by the way, this is supposed to remind us of Saul. You remember, what was the thing that made the peoples take so much comfort and hope when this random Saul character was chosen? Well, the text reminds us over and over again that he was head and shoulders above the rest of the men of Israel. Saul was young and strong. He just looked like a king. And so Samuel says, surely this is our guy. But God quickly interrupts him before he has time to do damage. And God says, that's not our guy. I understand that you are impressed by his physical appearance, but the Lord is not impressed by physical appearance. I know the hearts of men. This is not my guy. So Samuel says, okay. And so they line up through all of the kids and none of them work. And so Samuel is thinking, why was I sent here then? Like, are these really all your children? And he says, well, no, I, I, have, I have one, but he's keeping the sheep, the youngest. He's, he's not a king. So Samuel says, well, he's the only one left, so bring him here. And the Lord anoints this young shepherd. The shepherd who clearly had nothing kingly about him, at least from a worldly perspective, he was so much of an underdog that he wasn't even invited. It was just, yeah, one of my sons has this special thing. It's obviously not David, so you just keep tending the sheep. From all worldly perspectives, the youngest, David, is no king at all, but the Lord knows the heart, and so the Lord selects David. He anoints him with the anointing oil, and the Spirit comes upon him. But now David has really not been told much about his duties, or perhaps he has, and the text just hasn't told us about that. But all we know from David's perspective is that he has been chosen and consecrated and anointed and set apart by God for something special. Now, coincidentally, as all of this is happening... Something is happening in the royal palace. Saul, who we know has lost the spirit of God, God took his spirit from him, didn't just take him and leave him. He took his spirit and replaced it with a chaotic spirit. Or your Bible might even say an evil spirit. Now let me clarify a couple things here. This is not, we have to be very careful. When we read about the work of the spirit in the Old Testament, we as New Testament Christians have the tendency to take what we know about the Spirit in the New Testament and then impute it into His actions in the Old. But we have to be careful doing that. Because when we do that, what we're essentially saying is Pentecost was not special. Nothing special about Pentecost. The Spirit's been the same in both Testaments. But no, Pentecost was an obvious moment of something new. The Spirit being poured out and working in the world in ways that He has never worked before. Now, we don't have time today to get into the details of that. But my only point is that you can't take what you know about the Spirit in the New Testament and apply it to the Old. And so, one thing you have to be careful of not doing is, in the New Testament, we have debates in the Christian church of whether people can lose their salvation or not. Now, I'm not going to get into my position on that debate today, but that is not what this text is talking about. The spirit here is not a spirit of salvation or regeneration. That's what we think of when we think of receiving the spirit, adoption, regeneration, salvation. But Psalm, for example, David writes in one of the Psalms that he knew the Lord. He was saved from a very early age, and yet this is when he received the Spirit. When we look at the Spirit in 1 Samuel, this is a kingly anointing. This is the Spirit's way of setting this person apart for this important role. So this is not an issue of salvation. 
right? David did not get saved in this moment, but David has received the empowerment of the Spirit. Let me just remind you, being a king, the king of Israel ain't easy. You read through the Psalms, read about how often David is crying out to the Lord because literally the whole world is surrounding him and they're out to get him. He's got disobedient ins people inside the camp. He's got people that hate him outside the camp. He has an important role. He needs the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is exactly what David means. We won't read it today, but if you were to read through Psalm 51, one of the most famous Psalms in all of the Bible, where David is lamenting and confessing and repenting of his great sin, one of the things David says in Psalm 51 verse 11 is he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. What he's saying in that moment is he is recalling what happened to Saul. He is reminded that Saul sinned in such a great way that God said, you're not king anymore, give me my spirit back. And David is saying, I know that like Saul, I have sinned, but I'm asking for mercy. Please don't take the spirit. What he's actually asking for is to remain king. Please don't, don't cut me and my family off from the throne and anoint somebody else. David has received the spirit of empowerment, the spirit of anointing. And Saul has lost it, and it's been replaced with an evil or a chaotic spirit from God, and it's tormenting him. This is one of those texts that we stumble upon in the Old Testament where we just have to believe it. There is a tendency, in my opinion, in evangelicalism to soften all the hard edges of God. And we try to present and make God as fluffy and kind and nice and sweet as we possibly can. But what that often amounts to is simply rejecting how the Bible presents God. This is not an incidental spirit. This is not a spirit that just happens to fall upon Saul and God allows it. God sends it. He replaces the Holy Spirit with some kind of evil spirit of torment. Now, what does that mean precisely? I don't really know. In my mind, there's really two options. Perhaps God sent a demon and he is demon-possessed. Maybe that's what the text means by an evil spirit. This would be something akin to like what happened with Job. Remember, Satan wants to destroy Job, and God says, yeah, go for it. So maybe something kind of like Job or this demon, yeah, go get, go get him. Uh, but what it could actually also be a reference to is it just his spirit is, has, has, has a disposition of torment. Like if you are depressed or you're anxious, and you might talk about in biblical language, my spirit is downcast. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you in anguish within me? So maybe this is just like a disposition, a spiritual disposition, or maybe it's like an actual force. I think the text kind of seems to indicate the former because it talks about at the end how the spirit is driven from him, but we don't really know. But the point is, is God has done something spiritually to Saul and it's causing torment in his life. So right at the time that David is anointed as king, Saul is being tormented, and it just so happens that his servants know we know what to do with the tormented spirit. You need the universal cure for the grumpies, and that's some good music. Few things comfort our souls like a good song. And so it just so happens that God gives Saul exactly what David can fix. It also just so happens, coincidentally, Israel's a big place, 
that the youngest armor, or that the youngest of Saul's servants just so happens to be friends with this young Bethlehemite and knows he's not just a man of war and a handsome man that you would enjoy having around here. The kid's got some skills on the lyre. Now, what is the lyre? Again, we don't know for sure. Based on what we see in the Psalms, it's some kind of portable stringed instrument. So maybe like a miniature harp or something similar to like a guitar. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'll just call it a guitar, but that's not exactly what it is. But basically, David's good at sitting around the campfire playing his guitar, and somehow this young man knows. And so he says, hey, I know a guy who can provide such a service. And so Saul says, bring him. And David comes, hits him with a few guitar solos, and he's cured. He says, I like this kid. I want him around more. Tell his dad he's my armor bearer. He's going to be in service to me. And so look at all these coincidences here. Right as the new king is secretly anointed to be king, it just so happens that Saul needs his musical expertise and Saul has a person who knows of his musical expertise and it just so happens that he is now invited to come and serve the deposed king, be trained by him to learn the ways of the kingdom. What a coincidence, right? We know that as David becomes Saul's new music therapist and armor bearer, that this is not a coincidence. We know intuitively that this is the wisdom of God on display. We see God with his chessboard world in front of him, moving the pieces and getting exactly what he wants. We see the wisdom of God on display in this text. Let me break down. I think there are two key elements which remind us that God is the all-wise one. That God is wise beyond our comprehension. The first way in this text that the wisdom of God is made known to us is in whom he chooses. God shows his wisdom in whom he chooses. Look again at verse 6 and 7. When they came, he, speaking of Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We live in a world where there is a great power to physical attraction. Physical attraction is an incredibly powerful force in our world. You'd be amazed at how often we as human beings tend to prefer people who are attractive. Oftentimes it's subtle, we don't even know we're doing it. There is something about physical attraction that is alluring and powerful. People who are physically attractive truly, truly have privilege in this world. One way that I saw this my whole life growing up was playing sports. You'd be amazed at how many people there are that walk into a weight room busting out of their shirts. They can barely fit into those things and they go into the weight room and they throw weights around and make everybody look like a fool. And so they are of course given these starting spots because he's the tallest one on the team, he's the fastest one on the team, he's the strongest one on the team. But the guy can't bust a grape on the field. He's not that good. But people think he has to be. And you'd be amazed at how many people I would go up against drills and I'd size them up and say, I got this guy. He's shorter than me, he's slower than me, he's skinnier than me, he's weaker than me, I got this guy. And he eats my lunch. In sport, whether it's sports or job interviews or just our daily relations, you would be amazed at how subtle but how powerful this 
attraction is to how people look. And so verse 7, this is a huge theme. We've already, God has already said this once in 1 Samuel, and this verse is repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. God is the all-wise God. You can't fool him by how you look. We can be fooled. People can trick us and fool us and their attraction can allure us. God cannot be fooled. God looked at Eliab and said, I don't care how tall he is. I don't care how strong he is. I don't care how mature he is. He's not a king. Because I know his heart. You see, God in his wisdom protected the people of Israel from just going through another Saul. Yeah, this man is head and shoulders above the rest. He's clearly a king. Get him right. And then everything goes bad. And Samuel is being allured by this power of attraction. And Samuel's about to give them potentially another Saul. He looks like a king, but is he? And God in his infinite wisdom says, no, he's not. Pass by that man. See, God in his infinite wisdom, he sees and knows people. He knows their character. He knows who they are. He's not deceived by our performance, by the face we put on, by the way we look. Now, this has an important application for all of us if we can just take a quick uh, detour. Number one, this is a crucially important message for our children. I want all of the kids in this room to pay very important attention to this. As you grow up, you are going to be surrounded by friends and peers who want to convince you that you have to dress a certain way, that you have to be taller than everybody else in class, that you have to be more handsome, that you have to be prettier, that you have to be stronger, and they are going to judge you based on the way you look and the kinds of clothes you wear. And they are going to put heavy pressure on you to be stronger and taller and prettier and more handsome than people. But you are always going to have at Redeemer a church that will constantly remind you that God is not interested in those silly things. God does not care how expensive your shoes are. God does not care how expensive your dress is. God does not care how many touchdown passes you catch or throw. God knows your heart. And that's what God cares about. That's what we care about. And so it is the love of God for you and it is the person that you become that is more important than the pressure that your friends will put on you to look a certain way or to dress a certain way. God doesn't care about that stuff. But it's also important for us as adults in a couple different ways. First and foremost, we too are fooled by physical appearances. It's not just kids who go to school and have peer pressure. We too will oftentimes think that well, I'm not charismatic enough or I'm not handsome enough or whatever it might be, that your role in the kingdom of God is limited because of something about your physical appearance. And let me just tell you, that couldn't be farthest from the truth. As a matter of fact, God's wisdom loves to confound the wisdom of men. That's exactly what he does with David. You see, he doesn't just pass on the guy who looks like the king. He intentionally goes after the one guy that was, everyone was convinced, there's no way it's this guy. He wasn't even invited to the party. And God says, there he is. David? The little shepherd? The youngest of the bunch? David? 
God's wisdom so often confounds the world's wisdom. I would encourage you that if you think that your physical appearance or your charm, your charisma, whatever it is, is holding you back, perhaps that's the very thing God wants to use. Perhaps you're the most qualified to be used in the kingdom of God. It is the Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians who said when he came to the Corinthians, he did not come with plausible arguments and, and beautiful rhetoric and wonderful speech, but he came as a humble man with nothing but the power of God, and that was enough for him. So you too... Don't be fooled by the world in thinking your appearance means anything and how you are used by God. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're attractive and charismatic and fun that, uh, that you can't be used because David, the text actually goes on to say that David was a handsome man. Isn't it kind of weird that the text would tell us I mean, God looks at the heart and then turn around and be like, yeah, this really young, handsome, ruddy guy. <laughs> so I'm not saying that you have to have some kind of, you know, charmless personality or, or appearance. The point is God can use whomever he wants. And that's what you should put your hope in. And I would also say, maybe that this verse in a second, third application should help make us a little bit more mindful as we go out through the week. Are we maybe more prejudiced than we think we are? You know, obviously, if someone were to come up to you, you know, knock on your door and you answer your door and say, hey, do you judge people based on their race or their physical appearance or the way they look? You would probably say no. And I believe you. I don't think you do. I, I know we live in a world right now where there's this prevailing ideology that wants to convince everybody that you're secretly a racist and you don't even know it. And, and I reject that wholesale. But there is no doubt that we do tend to show partiality and favoritism in subtle ways we don't even realize. I remember last week here at church when we did our confession of sin, the specific confession of sin that came up from the scriptures was the sin of partiality and we had to go and confess ways that we have not treated people fairly or equally. And I didn't go through my week thinking I had done that, but it was just something in the power of God. When we started confessing that, something, an image came into my mind of that week when I had done that. And I had to confess, oh my goodness, Lord, please forgive me. I totally judged that person. So I'm not saying everyone in here is a bunch of closeted racists. I'm not saying everyone in here hates people if they're ugly or heavy or any. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that sometimes we are more prejudiced than we think. If we're not careful to think about it and to ask the Spirit to help us, you might be surprised at how often you favor attractive people versus unattractive people in your life. You might be surprised. I'm not accusing you of it. But I think maybe a verse like this just beckons us to some holy introspection. Lord, if there is within my heart this spirit that prefers people because of how they look, God, help me mortify that. Why? Because that's not how God judges things. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't look at your race. He doesn't look at how handsome or pretty you are, how rich you are. He knows your heart. God shows wisdom in who he chose. He chose, forgive me. But we also see wisdom not just displayed in whom he chose. We see wisdom displayed in how he made this choosing happen. There is wisdom in how he chose. We, we already covered verses 1 through 5 two weeks ago, but I'll just briefly reiterate it. Samuel tells God, hey, I would love to obey you right now, but Saul won't let that happen. You think I can just walk around Israel telling people, hey, I'm looking for the new king to take over Saul's throne. It's not going to happen. So God in his infinite wisdom comes up with this brilliant plan. We'll cloak it in a sacrifice. 
There's that old Greek story where we get the expression of the Trojan horse from. This is sort of the brilliant Trojan horse, the earlier one. Hey, I'm here for a sacrifice and out comes the troops of anointing. It's this brilliant plan to get Samuel past the gates. God displays his creativity, his wisdom, and his righteous deception. But we also see the whole encounter of the music. God displays his wisdom and how he uses music. God sent a spirit on Saul that tormented Saul, and God knew that music is what will and what the Israelites with Saul will know to drive him out. So, Saul, so God in his wisdom knows exactly what needs to happen to Saul to get the men to beckon a musician to get the other men to beckon David. God is just moving his chess pieces here, getting his exact result, but from human perspective, you would think it's just all coincidence. God shows his wisdom in the way he uses music as a means to an end. And I think this calls for another detour. I, I want us to see just for a moment that apparently from this text, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here because the New Testament doesn't shed a whole light, a lot of light on this, but I think we can still say something here, and that's this. Music seems to have a spiritual effect on us. Right? This is not metaphor here. Saul had a real spirit of torment. Like that was actually spiritually happening. And David's music spiritually overcame that. Do you see the power of music? Uh, music, in other words, is not just a pleasure or a hobby. Music is what I would call a means of grace. God uses music to actually affect our spirit. Music, maybe I'm not going to necessarily say it happens all the time, but we see from this text that music at least has the potential to really and truly spiritually affect you. I think this is why there is such a universal appeal to music. There's not a universal appeal to every genre and form of music. Right? There's kinds of music that I really hate. And that very music might be music that you really love. And vice versa. Certainly every culture and every person around the world has music that they hate, music that they like, music that they're just okay about. But you will almost never find a culture, never find a people group that altogether rejects or hates music. We go and reach unreached tribes in the world. You know what's almost always, we almost always find in unreached tribes? Two things. A knowledge and worship of a God and music. Music has this universal appeal. Everybody likes music. Everybody has some kind of music that they enjoy. And I think it's because music is designed to have this kind of important spiritual impact on us. And here, here's one of the ways that I say we just, as human beings, we just know this intuitively. You don't have to sit through a sermon or sit through a philosophy class or sit through a metaphysics class. People just learn and know that music affects me spiritually and different kinds of music affect me different kinds of ways. Here's how we know that. I'm going to give you two different scenarios. I, let's say I want to go work out. So I'm on my way to the gym and let's say I live in New York City and my gym is in up, you know, in a big building up top. So I get in the elevator, and what's almost always happening in the elevator? Music. What kind of music are they playing in an ele elevator? Norwegian death metal? Rap, hip hop? No. We have a whole expression for the kind of jazzy, soft, 
what we call elevator music. Because we know that there's just something intuitive. I don't even know how much thought was put into it, but we just, people just intuitively know you don't really listen to rap when you're in the elevator. I don't know why, but you just don't. Like, this is the music that fits the elevator. So imagine I get into an elevator and I just hear a nice, deep, you know, little saxophone or whatever. And then I step out of the elevator and I step into my gym. A big weight room with a lot of weights and a lot of overly masculine men throwing weights around. What kind of music is now at the gym? Same music as in the elevator? Just elevator music, just right. No. One of my least favorite things about the gyms that I've always gone to is the heavy metal screamo that I have to endure, at least before I bought headphones, at the gym. Why does the elevator play jazz and the gym plays rock? Why? Because we intuitively know that these forms of music impact us in different ways. Elevator music doesn't make me want to get under a squat bar and squat 500 pounds. Rock makes me want to do that, generally speaking. We understand that. There's a reason that when you go to a funeral, you don't just pick some random playlist and hit play. And this is why we at church have to be very careful about the kind of music we play, because not every music fits every situation. But what we can't deny is we cannot become a kind of neo-Gnostics Gnostics were the first and second century heretics that put such a huge divide between the material world and the spiritual world. And, and I have to, I just want to tell us all this day, I think that not just the reformed world, but any church in America today that's sort of pushing back against the happy, clappy, performance-driven megachurch movement, any church that's trying to resist that has to be careful not to overswing and get into this kind of Gnostic dualism that pretends like I'm not allowed to have an emotional, spiritual moment in church. Let me ask you this. Is it wrong for a Reformed church to play a song, a worship song, and in the middle have a brief guitar solo? I would submit to you it can be wrong, based on how it's done. But a guitar solo healed Saul. David was not singing. It was the music that healed him. So let me ask you, why would you want to reject that? It's, it's, it's okay to have beautiful music in church. That's okay. Why? Because we're not Gnostics. Because in God's world, not in the Gnostic world, in God's world, the spiritual and the material have been united. So material things affect our spirits. So we don't want to just want to drive them out, but we want to use them wisely. This is why, for example, sometimes when Pastor Jesse is praying, when Elder Jesse is praying, I will try to do something light on the piano. There are many Reformed people who will come in and say, they're trying to manipulate your emotions. When I upload the sermons on the sermon on our website, I will add a background track to the sermon. I'm trying to manipulate your emotions. When we have Good Friday service, we come in and I turn off all the lights and I try to light candles. He's trying to manipulate your emotions. You know what I say? Yes, I am. Isn't that what happened to Saul? Was, was Saul manipulated or was he healed? I would submit to you that there is certain music, there is certain lighting, there are certain things that matter in worship. It's, if, if we move into the new sanctuary and we dim the lights occasionally, I promise you that's not a liberal drift. 
Lighting matters. How the church looks matters. The kinds of songs we sing matters. Now, we still have good reason to reject the megachurch movement. We still have good reason, but it's because we don't think they're thinking this way. It's because we think the kind of spirit they're trying to give to you is not an appropriate spirit for worship. So we still have good reason to resist a lot of the, the junk that's happening, but we cannot overcorrect, which I believe happened in some of the earliest days of the Reformation, and say, listen, we're just going to have white walls and no music, and it's all going to be a cappella, and we're not going to mix up. It's, we need to make this as boring and simple as possible because it's about the lyrics, it's not about the music. And I would say it can be about both. And so let me just remind you that music matters and that God uses it in our lives in powerful ways. And so if you're downcast and you're depressed, listen to music. Put it on. Find music that you love. Find music that encourages you, that lifts you up and put it on. Another thing I would say is this is why parents of young ones do need to be very interested in the kinds of music they're listening to. This is not just like a cultural thing. Like, a, No, you need to know the music, when my child puts on those earbuds and puts it in and presses play, that music is having a spiritual impact on them. That matters. I would even make this extension out and talk about movies. What you show to your children, what you show to yourself, it impacts you. And much more than just having bad dreams. A lot of times, I don't want my kid to see that movie because it'll give them bad dreams. Church, that's the least of our concerns. They can handle a couple bad dreams. I don't want this demonic, pornographic filth to influence their spirit and ruin their faith. I don't care about their dreams. I care about their souls. Movies, music, this stuff matters. To say it doesn't matter is Gnosticism. That's the material world. That's the carnal world. Christianity is a spiritual faith. No, it's both. But let's get back on track and finish our sermon. The wisdom of God is on full display in this text. We see God chooses the right man. We see he works to get the right man in the right place. We see he knows exactly what means to use to accomplish his ends. Again, God is like this amazing chess player making his moves, winning the game. Do you see the wisdom of God on full display here? And so we need to delight in the wisdom of God. We need to take hope and comfort in knowing that the all-wise God is in control of the universe. The all-wise God is running the church. We need to delight in glory in the wisdom of God. And I would submit to you that while this text helps us get there, the most significant way that God is glorified, that the wisdom of God is glorified, is in the gospel itself. Gill also says this, the wisdom of God shines in the gospel the good news of salvation by Christ. In its doctrines and in its ordinances, it is called the wisdom of God in mystery, the hidden wisdom, the manifold wisdom. Every doctrine is a display of it. The ordinance of the gospel are wisely instituted to answer the end of them, and wisely God has appointed men and not angels to minister the word. We see the wisdom of God displayed specifically in the gospel. Let me read you another quote from a great theologian this time on the Presbyterian end of things. I love this. He says, 
Wisdom and knowledge are intimately related. The former is manifested in the selection of proper ends and of the proper means for the accomplishment of those ends. And that's what we've seen in our text. God was wise in his ends and he was wise in how he got his ends there. As there is abundant evidence of design in the works of nature, so all the works of God declares wisdom. I would argue, for example, music is another way we display the wisdom of God in creation and nature. Music itself is very complex and beautiful. Would you think in however many thousands of years humans have been here, we would run out of songs by now? Music is amazingly complex. Music itself shows us the wisdom of God, but we continue. Forgive me, I lost my face. They show from the most minute to the greatest of the good of his creatures and the manifestation of his own glory. So also in the whole course of history, we see the evidence and controlling power of God, making all things work together for the best interests of his people and the promotion of his kingdom upon earth. It is, however, in the work of redemption that this divine attribute is specially revealed. It is by the church that God is determined to manifest through all ages to the principalities and powers his manifold wisdom. What is he saying there? If you want to truly marvel at the wisdom of God, you can go to 1 Samuel 16, but I would encourage you first and foremost to go to the gospel. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's stop there. Paul had a very special, unique role in the plan of redemption. And what did he say? Of all the people to be chosen for this incredible privilege, Paul was chosen. And how does he describe himself? The least of all worthy. No, no, does that sound like, doesn't that kind of sound like David? God's got this new king in mind. And from a human perspective, David is the last person that should have been chosen. Yet God chose him. Paul's saying the same thing. To be the apostle to the Gentiles is a special privilege. And from a human perspective, I was the last person you should have picked for this job. No one in their right mind would have selected Saul of Tarsus to be a gospel to the Gentiles. Yet God chose him. But we continue. Verse 10. Or forgive me, verse 9. He was chosen to bring to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. How does Paul describe the gospel? It is the great wisdom of God, concealed and prophesied in the Old Testament, now through the church, finally revealed. It is so wise, it is so mind-numbingly brilliant that the angels in heaven look down and are amazed at what God is doing. How did he figure this out? 
And the demons shudder and tremble at the wisdom of God displayed in the gospel. Elder Jesse talked about this last week, this concept of the angels looking on earth like it's this grand drama saying, God, you are the wisest directors of all directors. This is the greatest, most compelling, most wise story we have ever dreamed to imagine. The wisdom of God displayed in the gospel. Let's finish with another text, 1 Corinthians. Turn back just a few to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Begin with me in verse 18. This will be a longer portion that we read, but it will need little commentary. For the word of the cross, that's a phrase for the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the great debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me just conclude with a couple comments about this text. What is Paul saying here? First thing Paul is saying is that the gospel has been so perfectly planned from eternity to accomplish everything God wanted to accomplish. Yes, it saves sinners. But it's also glorified God. And in the process of saving sinners and glorifying God, God never forfeited his own justice. That's why the book of Romans says he is both just and the justifier. God in his wisdom found a way to save sinners without compromising an iota of his goodness and justice and fairness and holiness. The gospel is so wise and creative that God has revealed both his justice and his mercy together. Those things don't belong together. When a police officer pulls you over, you're either going to get justice or mercy. You can't get both. God found a way in his wisdom to give us both. But Paul goes beyond that. And he talks about how, yeah, the gospel, when we tell it to the unbelieving world who are spiritually blind in their heart of hearts, it sounds foolish to them. It sounds like stupid religious fairy tales to them. But we who have the spirit, we know the wisdom of God. And God wanted it this way. 
He wants the world to look and scoff at it because then when God totally does the unexpected, it leaves no room to boast. So not only has God saved us in this amazing story without compromising justice and showing us mercy, but he has also saved us in such a way that he has removed any room for anyone to boast. All glory to God, all justice to God, all mercy to God. That's what the gospel has accomplished. Isn't it brilliant? And I remind you, the whole point of the story is to shame the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world said, Eliab is king. The wisdom of God says, David is king. The wisdom of the world says, if you want a savior, if you want a king, you need a strong, handsome, powerful man to come down with gold armor and an army, and he needs to conquer the world. And God sent a man who had nothing significant about his physical appearance to be born of a virgin in a manger, in a town no one cared about, to a woman no one cared about. And he was a carpenter. He wasn't a soldier or a warrior or a vocational leader of any kind. He was just a little Jewish boy who was born and raised a carpenter who then turned the world upside down forever. And by the way, the wisdom of God not just includes everything I've said, it includes you. What does he say in verse 26? Consider your own calling, brothers. The Christian church has been slowly but progressively changing the world for the last 2,000 years. And who has been, largely speaking, the Christian church for the last 2,000 years? A bunch of nobodies. Historians love to talk about Constantine, the conversion of Constantine. You want to know why Constantine is so significant? Because he's one of the few people in church history that was this amazingly powerful man who was converted. He's like one of the only ones. The vast majority of the Christian church, which has changed the world, has been changed by a bunch of nobodies. That's, that's what Paul says. When God came to turn the world upside down, who did he call to himself? Who was it that God said, I want them on my team? The rich and the powerful and the... No, none of you were, had these amazing worldly vocations. He chose the simple people of the world. Now, of course, I'm not saying if you're rich, you can't be saved. If you are powerful, you can't be saved. But the general wisdom of the gospel is that while the whole world says, if you want to change the world, you, want to, you need to do X, Y, and Z, God says, I'm going to change the world doing A, B, C. And it confounds the wisdom of man, and it shames them, and it puts us in our place, and it removes our reason to boast. Why? Because God is wiser than we are. He's wiser than us. We think we've got it figured out, but we don't. And so it is my hope that you would take great comfort in this. We do our best, but let me just remind you, you are not the all-wise one. But you are not in control either. When you are discouraged, when you feel life is not going your way, when you feel the world is not headed in the right direction, I want you to look at the gospel and to look at what God has already done through the gospel and through the church over the last 2,000 years. And I want you to remember what the purpose of the gospel is. It is to display the wisdom of God and to shame the wisdom of the world. So do not fret, do not panic. The all-wise God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. We're going to be okay, Jim. He is the all-wise one. And we put our trust in him.